Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. Is he worthy? Come on, he's been better to you than that. Give him some praise as you're seated this morning. Hey, we want to welcome everyone that is joining us online this morning. We love you. We're so thankful that you are joining us. If you would, you bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your love and for your presence. And God, today we ask that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see those things that you would have us know and do. And God, when we leave this place, may we be different because of the working of your Holy Spirit in us and through us. We are here today, not by accident. It is divine appointment. So God, you are faithful. Find us faithful in all that we say and do. And God's people say, amen, amen, amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you join me? Psalm 118. Psalm 118 today is the last Sunday of our Psalm series. We hope that you have enjoyed it and you have benefited from it. It has been a delight to teach and uh, to learn as well. So we're excited about the fall series that is coming up. So put your helmet on. Psalm 118, if Israel was a movie, this would be its soundtrack. Do you know how there are these anthems, these songs that seem to define a generation? In other words, if I said, sweet Caroline, that's it, right? So wherever Israel was, whenever they gathered for Passover, Psalm 118, it was, and even today, it is still sung. What is Passover? Passover is the time of remembrance, of celebration. When Israel recalled the Passover, where Moses stood before Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, "Mm, I don't think so. So Pharaoh dismissed Moses. Moses went back, counseled with God, and God He sent plagues. The last plague that really got Pharaoh's attention in all of Egypt was that of the death angel would march through the city. So God told all of Israel, take the lamb of a lamb, take the blood of a lamb that has been slaughtered and paint it over your doorpost. And when the angel comes by, he will not harm the firstborn son. He will Pass over your home. Psalm 18 is a remembrance of God's provision, of his guidance, of his, of his favor, of his sovereignty, of his power. It is also a psalm that would have bookended Jesus' public ministry. As Jesus sat on the back of a coal and entered into the city, the people, they gathered palm branches and they sang Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They would have sung at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Psalm 118. And then when Jesus gathered 
for the last supper that he would share with his disciples. Scripture tells us in Matthew that at the end, he concluded with song. It would have been Psalm 118. So Psalm 118, are you there? Verse one, here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love, it endures forever. Therefore, let all of Israel repeat, his faithful love, it endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priest, repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, his faithful love endures forever. In other words, God's love, his faithfulness, it never stops. And what the psalmist is reminding us, it would be as if I stood up today and I said, hey, in the balcony, let me hear it. God's love endures forever. Now this side, God's love endures forever. For the Gentile, for the Jew, for the pastors, God's love endures forever. In other words, you can believe it or not, but it's no less true. God's love, it endures forever. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your condition, no matter what, no matter where, God's love, it endures forever. It never stops. In this word that we see here, faithful love, it is known as hasat, which is a covenant-keeping promise. Oftentimes, our love is conditional. It's much more like a contract where if you meet my expectations, if your performance is good enough, if you don't disappoint me, if you don't betray me or break my heart, I will love you forever, kind of. It's contractual. But Hesed, it's covenant. It mirrors the language of, of that of a marriage. In other words, Jessica could call me today or meet with me and say, hey, Luke, I'm going to Guatemala. Don't follow me. Keep the kids. And guess what? I'm on a plane to Guatemala. Why? Because we have a covenant-keeping marriage. It's non-negotiable. Through all, which have not been many because she is a saint, for the most part, we have never talked about quitting. Never. Why? It's not an option. Why? Because it is a covenant kind of marriage. This is the faithful love that God has for his sons and his daughters. Verse five. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is for me. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In other words, God provides lasting security. For us, it would be God is faithful. 
His love endures forever. Therefore, I will not place my hope in a politician. I will not be disappointed, therefore, if a politician doesn't get office that I think should be there. Why? Because regardless of my desires or my preferences or my wants or what I believe in my limited sovereignty thinks is best, God's love endures forever. Therefore, I will not put my trust, my comfort, my hope, my confidence in a policy nor plan. Why? Because I will place and I will find my peace, my joy, my confidence, my comfort in the reality, the unchanging reality that God's love, it endures forever. Therefore, it is lasting security. I will not put my trust, my hope, my desires, my wants, my expectations in Prince Charming or Princess Charming because they will inevitably let me down. I will only place my trust and my hope and my confidence in the reality that God's love, it endures forever. I will not put it in my status, my relationships, or my finances. How much money I have in savings. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five says, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, it will never, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my help. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Jeremiah 17 says, but blessed are those who trust who place their trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and their confidence. For they are like trees planted alongside a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months or drought of recession or fears of recession or rumors of recession. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Back to Psalm 118, verse 10. Though hostile nations surround me, I destroyed them with the authority of the Lord. So what we know is this is coming from the pen of King David because normal people are not surrounded by hostile nations. So David is saying, I want you to note this, that I destroyed them, but it was with the help, the authority. It was within God's will. That is how it was accomplished. Not my strength, not my resources, not my planning. It was by God's authority, his sovereign will. Verse 11, yes, they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees. They blazed against me like the crackling of a fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. The battles that you're facing right now, 
be it spiritual or physical, emotional, financial, is that your position, your disposition? That I battle, but I battle under the sovereign will and authority of God. This is my desire, this is my plan, this is my hope, but thy will be done. Verse 13, my enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. What is this speaking of? Exodus chapter 15. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. No, the plagues come. Pharaoh relents, releases all of Israel. Israel is marching and they are singing songs of freedom. Finally, the oppressed have been set free. God's provision, his goodness, it is his favor, it is abundant, it is overflowing. And then they get to the Red Sea. And what do we do? Where do we go? What can be done? And then over their shoulders, they hear the approaching army of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, given later thought, said, go get them. I made a mistake. So they can't go forward. They can't go backwards. So what do they do? They begin to sing and cry out to God. You promised that your love would endure forever. And God tells Moses and all, all of Israel, sit back, watch. And the sea literally splits into dry land. And they go marching across it. And as Pharaoh's army goes through the sea, it collapses on them. This is the song that they sing. Verse 17, I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. He let me go through the valley, but I was never alone. Verse 19, open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go and thank the Lord. These gates lead me into the presence of the Lord. The godly enter there, and I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me what? Victory. Every once in a while, Jessica will walk into the living room and I will be watching a football game or a Braves game and Jessica will make the comment, I didn't even know they were still playing. And I will say, they're not. This is from 1989. And she'll say, you're watching a baseball game from 1989? Yes. Why? Don't you know who wins? Yes. I've read the Bible in its entirety. And in Revelation, God reveals to us, he wins. We win. We are victors because of his power, his authority, his sacrifice. We 
are victors. God's victory is certain. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean, waves or the crash of a loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God is mighty and he reigns. Verse 7, let us be glad, therefore, and rejoice, and let us give honor to God. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this down Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these words are true and they are from God. In other words, for us that have a covenant-keeping relationship with God, you win. You're already from right here, right now, in the midst of your circumstance and your condition, right on the battlefield of the marriage, of the relationship, of the finances, of the physical turmoil, you are a victor. So start acting like it. We walk around like, like little wimps all the time saying, oh, did you hear what they said? Or do you know what they did? Or woe is me. And you're a victor. And God calls us to position ourselves from an anthem of victory. In seasons of turmoil and brokenness and uncertainty, when all the world is going to hell in a handbasket, Christians, followers of Christ Jesus, we have the position to stand firmly on the foundation of what God has done on your behalf and on my behalf. We don't have to run around all frantic. We don't have to run around all broken and annoyed and mad and scared and fearful and anxious. Why? Because God is victorious. Verse 23 of Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made. Right here, right now, God has made this day. Therefore, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Jessica and I recently took our three kids to a burger restaurant in Greensboro that we like. We forgot that when your kid is young and at the infant stages, sometimes it's not a good idea to go into the public, no sector. Man, let me say this. For many of you, you bring your children in here and they cry and they act a fool and you think everybody is looking at you. They're not, okay? Anybody that looks at you and turns their nose up at you or rolls their eyes at you when your child cries, it's because they've either not had kids or it's because they forgot what it was like to have kids, all right? So you show grace and you think bad thoughts. All right, don't do that. Just, it's all right. We're glad you're here. We were sitting in the booth, and our youngest just started acting foolish. And Jessica was just exhausted. You could tell. And I said, hey, it's okay. Let me take her. So I took her, and we walked over to Academy Sports. But as I was leaving the restaurant, there was a man standing there, and he said, those are your three kids. 
And I paused. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're my kids. They're, they're, they're mine. And he said, my wife and I would do anything to have three kids. And I said, you don't have any kids. He said, no, we have five kids. We'd do anything. <laughs> it's only half. You really shouldn't laugh that, that hard. <laughs> we were created for joy. We are created to experience joy, to walk in joy. And the very things that we think will bring us joy oftentimes become joy distractors or become like, like a Hoover vacuum cleaner that just absolutely sucks the joy out of us. And there's actually a lot that we can learn from kids. I was looking at Jessica's phone the other day trying to find this video and I, could, I found one video, but it wasn't the video. I think I have the video and I couldn't find it. But I used to, when our girls were younger, we used to give them baths together so that we could save time. And as I took, I was by myself one time, I took Myla, or, I'm sorry, Ella out of the bath and, and she was standing there and she was drying off and I was trying to, I said, come here. And she was doing, she was going, de-da-day, de-da-day. And she was dancing, de-da-day, de-da-day. And I became aggravated. And I said, hurry. So she started dancing faster. Did I, did I? I was like, no. You know what I'm talking about. Stop. And she said, why? And I didn't have an answer for her. I had no sermons to write. I had no meetings to get to. I had nothing to do. I, things were just not going the way that I wanted them to go. So I became frustrated. I became agitated. And here this little child is inviting me into a dance, but I, I had two important things to do. I couldn't be bothered with such things. And I've come to conclude as I have gotten older in my life that I oftentimes divide my time into two categories, living and, and waiting to live. And when I'm living, I'm getting things done. I'm getting the ball down the field. I'm getting things checked off the list. And as I'm waiting to live, it's when distractions present themselves, I'm waiting in line or I'm waiting in traffic or someone isn't doing what I want them to do the way that I want them to do it. And in those moments, I feel joy fleeting, running away from me, something that I, I can't take hold of. I find myself wishing that I had done more, wishing that I had done less, not done that. And we will not truly understand God and what it means to step into the life that God has for us until we come to the conclusion that God is the most joyful being in the entire universe. And you and I, we are called, we are commanded to mirror the image of our creator. Therefore, God puts joylessness in the no compromise section of our lives. We have to reach for joy and we have to take hold of it. But we get so bogged down in the monotony and the burden of life. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, I've, I've said this before, but it's just one of my favorite passages. It says, he says, because children have an abounding vitality, because they are in the spirit free and fierce, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they are nearly dead. 
For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Is it possible that God every morning says, do it again to the sun and every evening to the moon, do it again? What if it's not automatic necessity that makes every daisy alike, but maybe God makes every daisy separately, but never got tired of making them? It may be that he has an eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we are. In other words, we feel like there's just this perpetual time. Every morning the sun rises and sets and the moon rises and, and sets and the fall, the leaves change. But what if God every morning says, all right, sun, do it again. All right, moon, let's do it again. Creating still to this day every individual flower, never getting lost in the monotony, but enjoying creation for why it was created. What if God, what if God entered into creation the way that many of us enter into life or our work week? I think Genesis would sound something like this if that were the case. In the beginning, it was around nine o'clock, so God decided it was time to go to work. He put the cover sheet on the TPS report and then separate, I thought some of you would have watched Office Space. That, that joke has just <laughs> missed everybody. TPS report. And then he separated the light from the darkness. He considered making stars and planets and filling the skies, but it sounded like too much work. Besides, thought God, that's not my lane. That's not my job. So he decided to knock off early and just call it a day. And he looked around at all that he had created and he considered, and he thought to himself, well, it'll have to do. And on the second day, God separated the water from the dry land and made all the dry land flat and functional and it all looked like Kansas. He thought about making mountains and valleys and forests and glaciers and jungles, but thought it wouldn't be worth all that effort. So God looked at it around at all he accomplished and he thought to himself, ah, it'll have to do. And then God made a crow to fly in the air and a carp to swim in the water and a cat to nefariously creep around on dry land. And God thought about making millions of other species of varying sizes and shapes and colors, but he lacked motivation after the letdown of creating the cat. Besides, it was almost quitting time. So God looked at all he had done and he said to himself, it'll, it'll have to do. And at the end of the week, God was burned out and tired and he said to himself, thank me, it's Friday. That's not what the Genesis encounter looks like, is it? It, it breathes literally life and God created and it was good and he spoke and it was good. And God created, and it was very, very good. God never got tired of it. He never got tired of the work. He 
You see, God's foundational characteristic is love, and that byproduct is joy. Yes, Jesus is known as a man of sorrow, and yes, God, Scripture refers to his anger from time to time, but that was always in response to a fallen creation. That was never a sustainable characteristic. His foundational characteristic is always that of joy. It's foundational. It's basic to him. Psalm, one, or Psalm 19 says, God has made a home for the heavens, for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. When God created the sun, he said, I want it to be like the doors opening and the bride coming through them for the first time. Or an athlete at the starting line just waiting to burst forth. John 15 says, we oftentimes miss this, the root of joy. John 15 verse 11 says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. And yes, your joy therefore will overflow. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. Philippians chapter four, verse four says, always be full, always Always be full of joy in the Lord. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming. In other words, remember the victory is yours. It's already been won. Why worry? Why be anxious? Why fret? The heavy lifting has already been accomplished. I grew up in a church that I'm very thankful for. He's dead now, so I'll use his real name, but his name was Bill. And he always had this just, this look of just absolute disgust on his face. Always just so sour. My youth pastor, Wes, I was talking to him this week and we talked about this story. I'll never forget it. He walked up to Bill and he said, Bill, are you happy? And Bill said, yes. Just like that, yes. And Wes said, then you need to tell your face. And that became just this joke in our home and our family. We loved it so much because it was so true. Nehemiah chapter eight says, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, this day. For today it is sacred before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued Therefore, go and celebrate with a feast of fatty foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected or sad for the joy of the Lord is our strength. In other words, joy starts today. Scripture tells us in Psalm 118, this is the day, verse 24, this is the day. It starts right now. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. So much of our life when we are kids, we can't wait to what? Be adults. And then when we get adults and we get the responsibility, we what? Wish we were more like kids. When you're single, you can't wait to what? 
be, be married, and then you're married, and you're like, man, single, you know, and then you find yourself single again, you're like, man, I can't wait to be married again. When your kids are in school, you can't wait for them to get out of school, and then you drop them off to college, and you cry all the way home because you just wish and long, man, that for them to be back, what, home. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. I love the fact that throughout Scripture, joy is oftentimes associated with that of feasts. Psalm 105 says, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him, yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exult his holy name, you who worship the Lord. So much of being joy-filled is just taking notice of all that there is to be thankful for, all the reasons we have to be filled with joy. But we get so busy, we get so beaten down, we get so worried. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joy of those who take refuge in him. And therefore, we should laugh. I read a recent article in Psychology Today that said that a normal four-year-old laughs over 400 times a day. A normal 40-year-old only lasts four times. Why? Because we have sinned and we have grown old and our father is younger than us. Each and every one of us, we are invited to this Dida Day dance to enjoy life, to enjoy the, the beauty, the comfort, the joy of the Lord. Isaiah 55 says, you will live in joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain and all these things will be gone forever. This is our promise. This is our victory. No more tears. No more pain, no more suffering, no more disease. Why? Because God dwells among his people. Psalm 118, we skip verse 22. And this is what we're going to enter into communion with. Verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Jesus, as he entered into the city during Passover, during Palm Sunday, Scripture tells us that he wept. Why did he weep? Because he knew that many of the city would reject him, would never know him, would never claim him as Lord and Savior. So therefore, his heart was broken. He wept. You and I, we have been invited into this covenant relationship with Christ Jesus. And for all of us who confess him as Lord and Savior, victory is ours. Therefore, our natural disposition is that of joy. Regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our condition, no matter what, no matter where, God invites us to step into a life, and that life is marked by joy. 
So because of that, there is an empty chair and there's an invitation extended to you and I to sit around the table of the feast, to eat the fatty foods and to drink the sweet drink. And that is what we're going to do this morning with hearts full of joy. Now, Scripture tells us that when we enter into the meal of the, last, or the Lord's Supper, we are to do so in reverence and with honor. Scripture tells us that if there is anything that dwells in you that is not of God, to confess it, to turn it over to the Lord. If you have wronged a brother or a sister, then you go. Before receiving the meal, you go and you make the best of your ability that relationship right, in right standing, and then come back to the table. In other words, maybe before you receive the meal, you need to receive what the meal represents. Salvation. Christ is Lord and Savior in your life. And if you have yet to accept him as Lord and Savior, we want to invite you to the altar where we would love to have the opportunity to tell you about that next step and to share with you about the love of Christ Jesus and pray with you and pray for you. Maybe for some of you, you're going through a season of difficulty. And to be honest with you, the joy, it seems to be fleeting. It seems like circumstances or condition have just robbed you of any joy in your life. We would love to have the opportunity to pray with you as well. But if you are ready to receive the meal, Jesus gathered around the table with brothers and he broke the bread and he passed it and he said, this bread broken represents my body that will be broken on your behalf so that the victory can be yours to have. And he said, when you eat, remember, Remember me, so you may partake at this time of the body of Christ Jesus. And then he took the wine and he poured it to the cup. And he says, this wine, it represents my blood that will be poured out that salvation can be taken hold of. Drink in joyful remembrance of what has been done on your behalf. Would you bow your heads? Father God, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your presence, and for your love. God, meet us where we are. Take us to where we need to be. The victory is ours. And may we sing from that position. And may our hearts and our lives be marked. And may we sing joyfully. And may we worship joyfully. And may the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, may it overflow. So that a watching and waiting world will know. In your strong name we pray. Please stand to your feet as we worship together. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, 
visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.